The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Let's continue in our worship together, and I would invite you to uh, open your Bible or have it ready to go. Uh, For those of you who haven't been with us on a regular basis, uh, we finish the book of Titus as we go through books of the New Testament. We decided to take a break and go through several weeks in a series that I call Life in the Body. And that's just getting back to basics of Christian life and also especially church life as we live corporately together. Our church is going on seven years of existence and a lot of people have come and gone. And so we need to kind of recalibrate, go back to the foundations as a church family, making sure we're all on the same page in the most basic fundamental areas of Christianity and church life. And so we've been doing a series on the basics and fundamentals of Christianity and living together as a local church family. And today we look at baptism and communion that I call the ordinances of the church. So we'll be looking at those two gifts that Jesus Christ gave to the church. We'll do a survey of their definition and some highlights. It's not going to be exhaustive as every topic we've been looking at in this series is kind of in a big picture survey of what key Bible verses say about these most important topics and a few that we've addressed recently were uh, dealing with confrontation or disunity in the church through restoration. Um, We talked about biblical preaching. We talked about giving. We talked about serving. We talked about discipleship. And so now we look at this most basic baptism and communion. So go ahead and if you want to follow along in your bulletin. Also, we've got all kinds of verses that I want to look at written some out for you, and then I'll highlight others. We'll stop there. Came up with six points trying to summarize the main things I wanted to say about baptism and communion. And in the church today and in the church throughout history, there's been a lot of confusion, even among professing Christians, about baptism, communion, the meaning of those practices, what you even call them. Is it an ordinance? Is it a sacrament? Is it a rite? Is it... So there's been debate about that. Uh, Let alone the details of why we practice those things. So we need to be on the same page about these things. Uh, Denominational... Denominations literally are created sometimes and have been historically over their view of the ordinances, what a particular group of people might think about communion. And they have their own view, and so, okay, let's start our own denomination, literally. Or baptism, same thing. And so there is much confusion, but I think there's real clarity in Scripture, and so we're looking to Scripture for the clarity on these issues. Uh, These are not peripheral issues, baptism and communion. They're not tangential. They're not uh, just corollaries to the faith. These are basic. These are fundamental. These are clearly taught in Scripture. These are like no-brainers if you look at the Bible, in my opinion. Um, so, so Scripture has sufficient information on these two topics, and it has clear information. So we need to look to Scripture. So hopefully what I'm giving you today is not a denominational perspective. Here's what our denomination believes, or even what GBF believes. I'm going to just try to show you what I think Scripture clearly teaches. And so we will, like Bereans, examine the Scriptures together to see what the truth is on these two matters. Speaking of being controversial, because they are, these two topics of baptism and communion, uh, I think of a good friend I had years ago, still a good friend, and they were going to a new church down in Southern California in the L.A. area, and we actually used to serve on a church staff together, and we got to see each other, and we were commiserating, and I was asking how it's going, and he was telling me about his new church, and he liked his church. It was, it was a cool church. It was a cool and hip church is all I remember cool and hip church down in L.A., and he's telling me about it. And The more he talked, the more nervous I got because it sounded, hmm, that's kind of particular or interesting or I've never heard of that before. And uh, Then for whatever reason, he talked about the fact that he thought it was cool that, yeah, at our church, we don't have uh, communion or baptism, especially communion. I said, you don't have communion? Yeah, isn't that cool? I said, nah, not really. Why would you not have communion at your church? Yeah, our pastor, he says... Uh, Communion is just too divisive among Christians. So 
instead of creating division in the body, he wants to be a peacemaker, and so he just decided we're not going to have communion in the church. And he thought this was a good thing. This is my friend. I was like, wow, that is bad. And uh, just reminded him from Scripture. Jesus gave communion, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, to the church as a gift to remind us of what Christ did on our behalf. And Jesus said, keep doing this as a church until he returns. So you can't abandon uh, communion just because some Christians can't agree as to its definition or its practice. Wow. So that's really dangerous. So that would just be one living example today of my experience. And no doubt you might have your own experiences uh, regarding different perspectives of communion. And because we've got a lot of people here from different backgrounds and upbringings and maybe different church teachings on this topic, uh, no doubt there's going to be some differences of understanding and opinion about baptism and communion. I, just, I know there is in this large group of people. So, again, let's just look to Scripture and see what the Bible has to say about these most basic things. And this is really basic, what I want to present to you today. And here's how basic it is. Let's go to point number one in life in the body on baptism and communion, talking about the ordinances that Christ gave the church. Number one, Jesus gave two ordinances to the church. Isn't that profound? Jesus gave two ordinances to the church, baptism and communion. Some of you are thinking, oh, this is like elementary. But not everybody's going to be thinking that. Because there might be somebody sitting here thinking, no, there's not just two, there's seven. Or some of you might be thinking, no, there's three. Some of you might be thinking, there's one. Because all of those are answers given by certain very specific denominations or church groups. But according to the New Testament, we believe that an ordinance was given by Jesus himself to the church to remind us of the meaning of his death and resurrection on our behalf as sinners. So the ordinances were given by Jesus himself to the church. And so we would say that there are two ordinances given to the church, baptism and communion, as opposed to uh, I grew up as a Roman Catholic for 19 years, 12 years of Catholic school, my whole family uh, I had Catholic religion in every one of my 12 years at a Catholic school, uh, very well-educated Roman Catholic in my theology, and every Catholic knows that the Catholic Church teaches there are seven, well, they don't call them ordinances, they call them sacraments. So they would say seven. I would say clearly there's two. The Catholic Church says there's seven, starting with, and they're kind of in order because they cover the stages of life. Baptism, you baptize a baby when it's eight days old to remove only the original sin, uh, then you have your first communion when you're around first grade, and then you can have penance where you talk to a priest so you can get your sins forgiven through some man, and then you have confirmation around seventh grade like I did to reconfirm uh, what you couldn't remember from when you were baptized when you're eight days old. Uh, and then you have one of the other uh, either holy matrimony. See, and I, I would say that the ordinances were given by Jesus to the church, but God gave marriage to humanity in Genesis chapter Two, uh, But the Catholic Church would say that marriage or holy matrimony is one of the seven sacraments. And then the other one would be holy orders. That means if you become a priest, you can't get married. That would be one of the seven sacraments. And then finally, in your last days when you're about to die, you have a priest come pray over you just before you get to heaven so some more of your sins could be forgiven. That is called extreme unction given at the point of someone who is on their deathbed. So that's the Catholic delineation of the seven sacraments. Uh, in the Protestant denomination, you have the Grace Brethren denomination, and they believe there are three um, where there's baptism, communion, and also foot washing. I am so glad I'm not a Grace Brethren person. Uh, but anyway, foot washing, how yucky. But uh, they get that from John 13, that act that uh, Christ did there. Uh, then also in the Protestant denomination, you have the Salvation Army, where they say there are no ordinances to be practiced. They don't believe in practicing baptism or communion. Today And uh, that was William Booth, started in the late 1800s, early 1900s in that denomination. And actually he was ordained as a minister in the Methodist denomination and then kind of came up with his own, his own views. And then there's also some very well-known ultra-dispensationalist groups. Um, and they would say there's anywhere from one to zero uh, sacraments because they believe that the church didn't start in any of the Gospels, the church started very late in Paul's ministry after Jesus gave the ordinance of uh, baptism. So baptism doesn't apply to the church. Uh, so anyway, that's just kind of a broad spectrum. And whereas I would say that Scripture, I think, clearly teaches that Jesus gave two ordinances to the church to continually be, be practiced 
perpetually throughout the church age until he returns again. So that's why I put Matthew 28:19. The last command Jesus gave to the church was the Great Commission. Make disciples. Pretty much until I return, I'll be with you to the end of the age. And while you're making disciples, part of making disciples is baptizing people after they believe. So that's an ordinance given by Jesus to the church until He returns again. It is perpetual. So it's an ordinance of the church and it reminds believers of Jesus' work, His perfect life, His death and resurrection on behalf of sinners who have been saved. And then at the end of his life, let's go ahead and look at it in Luke because we're going to have communion today, so it's appropriate in preparing our hearts and minds for the meaning of communion. Communion uh, means fellowship between two or more persons at an intimate level. Communion. But communion is also called by other names. The Catholics call it Eucharist, as do a couple of other denominations, which is a biblical word right out of 1 Corinthians. It means to be thankful. And at the time of communion, it is appropriate to be thankful to the Lord Jesus for what He's done on our behalf. So, not a bad word. Eucharist, and it's also called the Lord's Table, and it's also called the Lord's Supper. So all four of those titles have precedent somewhere in the New Testament. They all have a different point of emphasis, though, in the meaning of communion. So, looking at Luke 22:19, this is... The Last Supper. And actually what this was, Jesus was celebrating the Passover. But when we think communion, we can't forget Passover. Moses, Exodus 12, uh, walking, going through the Red Sea. Uh, God delivering His people who were undeserving and unworthy with a supernatural miracle of salvation, physical salvation. And then God commemorating that with a perpetual Celebration called Passover where the angel of death, God's angel of holy death, came and passed over literally anybody that had blood splattered on their house. And then God wouldn't kill the firstborn in that house if there was blood there because that blood was the substitute of the sinner that deserved to die by that death angel. That was the Passover when God in His holy wrath passes over and doesn't kill sinners who deserve death because an animal had been sacrificed and killed as a substitute on behalf of the sinner. And that is to be celebrated on a very specific day every year by the Jews. And on that very night, Jesus Himself, the Lamb of God, gave His life and died as the Passover for sinners. Isn't that amazing? Fulfilling Old Testament Scripture. And then Jesus turns the Passover into the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, communion for the church from that day forward. So communion, when we have communion, really should remind us of Passover and God's holy wrath passing over us as sinners because we deserve death. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, died in our place. It's a celebration. Hence, we can call it a Eucharist, to be thankful to Jesus for His death on our behalf. So this is the night of Passover where Jesus turns Passover into the first communion of the church that will yet be established upon His resurrection. In Luke chapter 22, looking towards the middle there, around verse uh, 19, Sitting with his twelve apostles, then Judas is excused to go do his dirty deed. And the remaining eleven are with Jesus. And when Jesus had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Keep on remembering me. Every time you have communion, remember Jesus, who he is, what he did on behalf of sinners. And that's what we're going to do today at the end of church when we take communion is remembering Jesus, who he is, and what he did on behalf of us on a very personal level, if you know Jesus Christ, do this in remembrance of me. So why do we have communion? Why, why do we celebrate it? Is it to get some of our sins forgiven? Is it to appease God's holy wrath? Is it just to do another good religious deed? No. Right? Jesus said what, why we do it. Do it in remembrance of me. When you do communion, remember me. It's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus did. Right? So that's what Jesus called us to do. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, He took the cup and after uh, they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So communion really is a covenant. It's the sign of a covenant. The covenant really is Jesus who died on our behalf and shed His blood. He died for sinners. And then communion is just an external symbol or sign reminding us of what Jesus did on our behalf. The, the cup of wine he had wasn't his blood. That was a cup of wine. He was speaking metaphorically as Jesus often did. All the time. I am the bread of life. 
I am the door. Etc., etc. You got metaphor. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. He was the master teacher. He used metaphor so we can relate. And when he said, This cup is my blood, he didn't mean this cup is really my blood. This cup symbolizes my blood of the death I'm about to die for you in just a couple of hours. So it is symbolic, it is metaphorical. And every time you take communion, remember me and my death on your behalf. Very clear. So Jesus gave two ordinances to the church, baptism and communion. Let's go on to the next one. Baptism and communion are signs and not sacraments. So I just hinted at that. By sign, I mean symbol. Uh, or if you want to use the word metaphor, a living, tangible, physical metaphor that speaks of something else as a symbol. Baptism and communion are not sacraments. Sacrament comes from a Latin word. It has to do with doing a ritual act, a sacerdotal act. Ooh, there's a $3 word. A religious act that you do so that you can become more holy. That's contrary to the Bible. We don't do acts and do deeds and do things so that we can become more and more holy. But that's what the word sacrament means in the Latin. To make more holy. A sacred rite that we do to make us more holy and earn a little bit more forgiveness and appease a little bit more of God's wrath in kind of an incremental, ongoing, little by little kind of a fashion. And it's never complete. It's never totally done. It has to be done again and again and again, repeatedly, over and over again, during the course of your entire lifetime, so that you can get more and more forgiveness of sin and more and more forgiveness of sin. Because why? Because we keep on sinning, don't we? Week after week, day after day, month after month, we need more and more forgiveness. Hence the word sacrament. It's like a spiritual IV you have in your wrist all the days of your life. And little by little, little by little, little by little, it is infusing you with spiritual righteousness, grace by grace, little by little. Okay, forgives a little bit more sin and then forgives a little bit more sin. And it's never complete. It is never total. It's not a one-time act. That's what the word sacrament means and entails. So you never have total, complete forgiveness of sin. That's what a sacrament is. That's why you have to keep practicing the sacraments over and over again in certain views of theology. And I would say that the Bible says, no, these are not sacraments. They don't impart righteousness. They don't earn us forgiveness. They don't bestow grace. They don't confer justification. Those are all technical phrases that are used by those who believe in sacraments. Baptism and communion are simply signs or symbols or metaphors. And that doesn't demean the ordinances at all. And we'll see that in the next point. But that's all they are. So that's why historically some theologians, I think appropriately, would call them memorials. The communion is a memorial. Remembering that word memorial comes from Jesus' own words. Go to 1 Corinthians 11 so we can actually see Paul's theological explanation on Luke 22 of what Jesus meant when he gave communion to the church. It's not a sacrament, especially, I think, of communion, which, like I said, the Catholic Church and others call the Eucharist. And here I actually took these phrases from official Catholic catechisms and formal authoritative statements from their church, including the Council of Trent, of what they said about the sacraments and their meaning and how they'd be interpreted, especially communion. Quote, the sacraments confer Grace, end quote. You know what that means? When you take the Eucharist, just going through the process and eating it and taking it, actually it, it confers grace. God gives you more grace so that you can have more forgiveness of sin. That's why I talked about it as a spiritual IV. Dose by dose, you're accumulating more forgiveness of sin. That is contrary to what the Bible teaches. But that's what they mean by the sacraments confer grace. Another official phrase out of their doctrinal statement, quote, the sacraments bestow salvation, end quote. The participating in the sacraments actually provides you with salvation. And we know clearly from Scripture that is not true. There's only one thing that bestows, earns salvation. It is Jesus Christ, His perfect life, His willing substitutionary death on the cross that absorbed the wrath of the Father, His resurrection from the dead, His ascension on high, and His bestowing salvation to anyone who believes in Him and the work that He has done on behalf of the sinner. That is the only thing that earns, confers salvation or forgiveness of sin. It is what Jesus did, not what we do. 
And this is so confusing. But that is, that is just intuitive to human nature to try to earn favor with God and earn His forgiveness and appease Him by thinking we can do it by our own good works. Including religious rites and practices. If I just have communion enough, then God will forgive me more and more sins. No. It doesn't matter how many times you take communion, that's not going to earn any forgiveness for any sin whatsoever. But it says, the quote, the sacrament bestows salvation. And Scripture says, I think of the Philippian jailer when he asked Paul after hearing the God, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to earn salvation? What must I do to have forgiveness of all of my sins? What must I do to be guaranteed that I'm born again and go to heaven when I die and even know Jesus and God now in this life? What must I do? And Jesus said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's it. Believe in what He did. Not, it's not what you do. Actually, the only thing we do is repent and believe. So we do do something. It's repent and believe. And as a result, God imparts salvation. He's not doing it through some religious rite or religious act. And that again, this is just human nature. We take good things. We take sometimes even things God gives as a gift, whether it's to Israel or to the church, and we turn it into an idol or we misuse it on a very human level for works righteousness. And that's what... Unfortunately, many in the church have done for 2,000 years. They take a gift that God gave to the church, whether it's baptism, which was supposed to be just a symbol and a sign and a metaphor, and then a lot of people have turned it literally into an idol or a religious rite whereby if you do that, you will get your sins forgiven. That's a distortion of why Jesus gave it. And in communion, it's even worse. Where God gave the gift of communion to His church to remind us of what He did, and yet we as inherently self-centered religious people turn it upside down and say, now if we just do communion, I can earn some more forgiveness from God. I can earn uh, or appease God's wrath if I just do communion and repeat it over and over again. I think of Moses in the days of Moses. It was true then when they were all they got that uh, sickness from the snakes and then God said, okay, Moses, build a, a snake uh, on the rod and hold it up in the air, the snake on a like a broomstick, and anybody that looks to it in faith will be healed. Which is kind of crazy. Look at the broomstick with the ugly snake on top, and you'll be healed instantly. And so anybody that did and looked believing in faith was instantaneously healed. They were not healed because of a human work. They were healed because of the promise of God and faith in the promise of God. And God did a supernatural miracle. Now, years went by, and guess what they did with that cool rod that was probably covered in gold with that ugly-looking snake on it? They took it and they turned it into a holy relic. And people actually started worshiping it and thinking, if I just touch it, I'll get healed. And it became an idol. And it became a curse to Israel. And that's what humans do. We just turn good things into idolatry and mess everything up, especially when it comes to religion. Uh, so baptism and communion are signs or symbols. Let's go ahead and read Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, where he explains this, verse 23, For I received from the Lord Jesus Himself by direct revelation. For I received from the Lord Jesus that which I also delivered to you as Christians, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which He was betrayed, He took bread at the Passover. And when He had given thanks, there's that word Eucharisto, when He had given thanks, He broke the bread and He said, This is My body, which is for you. This bread symbolizes My body, My life for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Remember Me that I gave my life for you. That's what we do at communion. Verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. What do we do at communion? What is the purpose? What are we actually doing? Well, there's another. We are remembering what Jesus did for us at the end of verse 25. And also verse 26, it says, there's a verb there. You proclaim the Lord's death. Kata angelio. It means to speak out, to speak forth, to declare, to verbalize. What are we doing? We're making a verbal declaration of what Jesus did on our behalf and how glorious and wonderful it is. And we give Him praise. We give Him thanks that He died for us as sinners. And we have forgiveness in the work of Christ. That is a declaration that we make every time we take communion. So it's a remembrance and a declaration of what Jesus did for the sinner. It's important to keep that in mind. These are signs and symbols of what Jesus did for us. Let's go on to number three. After baptism and communion are signs, not sacraments. Uh, number three, baptism and communion are sacred, but not sanctifying. 
Some, some people might think in verse, or the second point, baptism and communion are signs, simply metaphorical, simply a symbol, and not a sacrament, that we are denigrating the meaning and the purpose of baptism and communion. Not at all. Not at all. Baptism and communion are sacred. They are hallowed. They came from Christ. They are defined by God. They have amazing significance. Significance of the highest order. Baptism and communion are sacred. They aren't flippant. They aren't to be distorted. They aren't to be done lightly. They aren't to be minimalized or marginalized. And God forbid a church that's truly a Bible church decides, oh, we're not going to do communion. It's too controversial. That's demeaning it. Baptism and communion are sacred. They aren't, but they are not sanctifying. And the reason I say sanctifying, that's a technical word. It's a specific word that many denominations actually believe that either baptism or communion or both are actually sanctifying. And by sanctifying, I mean to make you more holy. That's why when people want to get baptized, one of the basic questions I ask them is, so are you a Christian? Yes. Okay, how would you become a Christian? And then the follow-up question that's very important to know is, do you think getting baptized next Sunday will forgive any of your sins? Hopefully the candidate says no. Do you think getting baptized will make God like you more? Hopefully they say no. Because they're supposed to be getting baptized because they're already a Christian. They're getting baptized because all of their sins have already been forgiven based on what Christ did for them. And they believe in the work of Christ. And so baptism is just a sign or a symbol of the fact that they are already a Christian. All of their sins have already been forgiven. So getting baptized does not make you more holy. Taking communion doesn't make you more holy. doesn't make God like you better. Nothing we do can do that. Uh, dedicating a baby doesn't guarantee the salvation of that child or forgive any of their sin. Baptism and communion, we've got to do them for the right reason. They are sacred, but they're not sanctifying. They won't make you more holy. Here's some, just so you know, because some of you probably grew up in some of these denominations. Uh, Anglicans, Catholics, Lutherans, Presbyterians, and Methodists all spr- believe in sprinkling for baptism, all the way from like one or two drops on the forehead to a little bit more water on the forehead. That's the mode of baptism. Eastern Orthodox people and Anglicans, Catholics, Lutherans, Presbyterians, and Methodists believe it's okay to baptize babies or infants, like I said, some say at eight days old. Whereas I say the Bible says, no, we don't baptize babies. As a matter of fact, when I talk to my fellow believers, there are a lot of Christians, true, genuine Godly people who believe it's okay and actually we should be baptizing infants, babies, one week old. And then I just have basic questions. Where in the New Testament is an example of an infant ever being baptized? Answer, there isn't one. Never. You can't find one. Anybody that is actually baptized is an illustration. It's usually an adult. Almost all the time it's an adult. And it's someone who knows why they're getting baptized. And there's always a profession of faith before they're getting baptized. So uh, Jesus never baptized a baby. John the Baptist never baptized a baby. And the New Testament, the apostles never baptized a baby. And it's never the New Testament never commands anybody to baptize a baby. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, Roman Catholics, Eastern, Eastern Orthodox Church, the Lutheran Church, Anglicans, and the Church of Christ, which is a Protestant denomination, all believe in baptismal regeneration on a broad scale, from here to here with all kinds of different nuances among their own denomination. They believe that actually going through the practice of baptism somehow accumulates, secures, confers, bestows, they use different words, forgiveness of sin. And we'd say the Bible says absolutely not. That's clear in Scripture. We'll look at that point number six in just a second. So baptism and communion, they're sacred, they're holy, they are to be revered held up high, but they don't sanctify, they don't make you holy. Staying in 1 Corinthians 11, look at how sacred communion is. We just read Paul's meaning of it, what we do. We remember Jesus and we proclaim His death on our behalf. 
And then he gives a warning in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 11. Very important warning. We need to heed this now because we're going to take communion in just a minute. So if you are taking communion, this warning is for you, this warning is for me. And we need to remember this warning every time we take communion. Because it comes from the Lord Himself. Verse 27, Therefore, whoever, whatever, Christian, whatever professing Christian eats the bread of communion and drinks the cup of communion in an unworthy manner. What's an unworthy manner? In an inappropriate manner. Primarily, it means with the wrong attitude and wrong heart. Usually, it has to do with having a wrong thought or a wrong uh, attitude in your heart towards someone else. You've got a heart of unforgiveness towards someone. That would be an example of an unworthy manner. Another unworthy manner is thinking that if you take communion, it's going to earn you some forgiveness of sin. But he says, any professing Christian who takes communion in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. That is a severe warning. Guilty. We don't want to do that. Verse 28, but a man or a woman or a Christian must first examine themselves. So before you take communion, if you're a Christian and you're going to take communion today, examine yourself. That means examine your heart. Examine your life. Examine your thought life. Are you angry at someone? Are you unforgiving at someone? Do you have a grudge against someone? Do you have a grudge against another believer? Wow, that's bad. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 5 and Matthew 18. Get it right. Don't take communion if you've got a vendetta or a hang-up or unforgiveness towards another person. That's dangerous. So that's what he means by examine yourself. Examine yourself. Confess your sin. 1 John 1.9 If you confess your sin to the Father, He's... Uh, faithful and righteous to forgive you of all of your sins, boom, on the spot, instantaneously, just by confessing it and believing in answer to prayer. If you examine yourself, and in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. Then examine yourself, and then you can eat. Verse 29, For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. So every time we take... What happens when we're taking communion? Well, Jesus' body is... The blood and the... Wine aren't turning into Jesus' body. But one thing that is happening during communion is God is judging you and God is judging me. And judge can be a good thing or a bad thing. He's examining us as we examine ourselves. So every time we eat and drink, we are bringing judgment to ourselves if He does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you in the church are weak and sick and even a number sleep. Literally, there are people in the church sick And weak and even Christians are dying as a result of violating communion and taking communion in an unworthy manner. That's scary. But that was happening in the Corinthian church. So Paul wants to warn everybody, wow, we've got to take this seriously. This is sacred. It is hallowed. We go before God with the right attitude. We examine our heart. We confess our sin. We thank Jesus for dying for our sin paying for that sin, imparting forgiveness to us. And then as we take communion, we celebrate, we give thanks. Thank You, Lord Jesus. We remember You and what You did on behalf of us undeserving sinners. So baptism and communion are sacred, but they're not sanctifying. Let's go on to number four. Baptism comes before communion. Look at Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Now I use Acts chapter 8, verse 12... As one example, and I could have used about ten other verses, but that would be redundant because they all pretty much teach the same thing. Baptism comes before communion. What do I mean by that? Well, chronologically, baptism should come before communion. Chronologically. Historically. That is the model. That is the clear model in the book of Acts and in the early church. You should be, taking, you should be getting baptized before you take communion. I will say that again. You should be getting baptized before you take communion because that's the chronological model in the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, the book of Acts, believers got baptized immediately at the time they got saved. Unlike today in America or the rest of the world, it is not uncommon for somebody to become a Christian and then they go 15 years before they get baptized. They go 20 years before they get baptized. For me, it was a good four or five years after I got saved at age 19 before I got baptized. That is so common. And then sometimes Christians, they go like 5, 10, 15 years without getting baptized. And then they know they hear they should get baptized, but then they're embarrassed to get up and get baptized and give their testimony and say, I got saved 15 years ago and didn't get baptized. So they put it off even more for another 15 years. And it's just this vicious cycle. 
But in the New Testament, it is clear, baptism comes before communion. It's also very common in church families that have kids. Children are a blessing from the Lord, by the way. Um, You have kids. The kids grow up in the church. They're memorizing Awana verses at age three as cubbies. And they got that down. John 3.16, know it by heart. Boom. They even know how to... they They pray to God at the dinner table at age four. They grow up in the church. Sometimes they go to a Christian school. They have just been Christianized in and out. Their DNA is Christian. So one thing that's common in the church is that you've got little kids in a Christian home who are taking communion early on. Age 3, age 4, age 5, age 7, age 9, age 10, age 14. And then, interestingly enough, and I know I used to be a children's pastor and I saw this at a big church couple of big churches where I used to be a children's pastor where you'd have a Christian home with little kids and they're taking communion and yet the kids have never been baptized. Yet the New Testament model is baptism comes before communion. And the conversation I had with the parents was always the same. 100% of the time. And I would say, uh, I noticed your six-year-old Johnny took communion. Cool. Yeah, he takes communion. Oh, right on. So when did he get baptized? Uh, he hasn't been baptized. Oh, well, why hasn't he been baptized yet? Well, I'm not sure if he's a Christian. Oh, yeah, I want to make sure that he's really a Christian. Like when he's very deliberate, so maybe when he's 16 or 17 and his faith is on, then I'll have him get baptized. Oh, but he takes communion. Yeah. Well, who's supposed to take communion? Uh, Christians. And your little Johnny, age six, takes communion because... You think he's a Christian? Yeah. Oh, I thought you just told me you didn't think he was a Christian. And that's why he's not baptized. Uh, oh, yeah. So I've had, That is a real conversation I have had over and over and over and over with Christian families and Christian parents. And then sometimes they're embarrassed or sometimes they panic or sometimes they'll say, Pastor, what do I do? I love that question because, well, it's, it's simple. Do you really believe Johnny is a Christian? Yes, I do. Okay, well, let's talk about what that means and if, what should a Christian do? What is a Christian commanded to do according to Jesus in the book of Acts? The first thing that is supposed to happen to a Christian in terms of obedience, they need to get baptized, right? So let's get this little six-year-old baptized if he's really a Christian. Then we start talking about the prerequisites for baptism. So the first service of GBF, 6.6 years ago, with all 32 of us. And we had like 24 kids and 22 adults. And the very first service that we had, we took communion. And before the communion service, I just spontaneously made a, a half of a sentence and I said, and everybody, everybody who's a Christian is welcome to take communion today. And so if you have been baptized, you are welcome to take communion. And then half the audience went <gasps> and gasped because a lot of parents were having their kids take communion, but they hadn't been baptized yet. So it was kind of cool. So about a month later, we had 11 of those children get baptized all at one service. And I talked with every single one of them to hear their profession of faith. And that was exciting. It was memorable. Uh, So if you're in that boat, you don't need to be embarrassed because a lot of times it's just not talked about, it's not taught, it's just assumed, it's been tradition in so many churches. Nobody really pays attention to it. But if you've got a young one who's taking communion but has never been baptized, then they need to get baptized if they're a Christian. Or maybe you're an adult and you're taking communion and you haven't been baptized. You need to get baptized. Because why? Because baptism comes before communion. So Acts chapter 8, verse 12 says this. Here's uh, Philip, who was an evangelist and a preacher. Uh, Verse 12 says, But when they believed Philip preaching the good news. By the way, in verse 5, it says Philip began proclaiming Christ to a bunch of Samaritans. They were not saved, and Philip is preaching Christ. He's preaching the Gospel. Verse 6 says there were crowds and crowds of people. They were giving attention to what Philip was saying. They were listening to the Gospel message. Many of them responded. They understood. They comprehended. They believed. They embraced the message of the Gospel. Verse 12 says, and when they had believed, they became a Christian. That's what it means in verse 12. They became believers. So they got saved. And what was the first thing they did after they got saved? Verse 12. And when they believed, or after they had believed, 
Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized. That is just a refrain repeated all throughout the book of Acts. It's what you do. It is natural. You believe, you become a Christian, you get baptized. And to get baptized, you don't need a 12-week baptism preparation class. It's, I'm a Christian, here's my testimony, oh, there's a puddle of water. Dunk me, Pastor, or dunk me, Christian. Like Philip said in this very same chapter. So baptism comes before communion. And here's a complimentary truth number five. There are prerequisites for the two ordinances. Something needs to be done before you do communion and something needs to be done before you have uh, baptism. Or the proper order. There's something that needs to be done before you get baptized and something needs to happen before you have communion. So, And I'm, they're going in order. So here are the prerequisites. Uh, baptism. The prerequisite for baptism is a personal profession of faith. Acts 2, 38. I, gotta, I typed that wrong. Sorry. Uh, 38. Where Peter preaches the gospel and they said, what must we do? Basically be saved. And he said, uh, believe. Believe and get baptized. There it is. Believe and get baptized. So before you get baptized, you need to believe. You need to believe the gospel message. You need to repent of your sin, believe in Christ, believe in the gospel. Then you become a Christian and then immediately you can be baptized. So the one prerequisite before you get baptized is a profession of faith that you believe in the gospel. That's it. You don't have to conquer your cigarette nicotine habit for three months and all these other things that Christians foist upon themselves of Dirty de- I've had that conversation with a lot of people. Are you a Christian? Yeah. When did you get saved? Seven years ago. Have you been baptized? No. Why not? I'm not ready yet. Why aren't you ready? Well, I'm not good enough yet. Seriously? Newsflash, you will never be good enough. None of us are. And then I ask, what do you think the biblical prerequisite is for getting, for getting baptized? And we have that conversation. And it's so simple, they can't believe it. It's having a profession of faith in Jesus And in the gospel, that's it, being saved. You mean I don't have to reform my life? No, that'll take you the rest of your life. I don't have to uh, overcome my bad habit of cuss words? Well, hopefully someday you will in the sanctification process, but it is not a prerequisite to get baptized if you are really a Christian. It really is that simple. That's why I don't have baptism classes. I have baptism conversations. Okay, you know Jesus, let's get dunked next week. Really, that's how simple it is. So the one prerequisite is a profession of faith in the gospel, clearly articulated. And by the way, how old must you be before you can be baptized? You ready? Write it down. No, we'll talk about that next week. Let's go on to point B. (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, There is no age in the Bible for how old you must be to be baptized. So the age requirement is, is the candidate who wants to be baptized, can they articulate a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and be able to interpret and understand all the important elements of the Gospel. That they are a sinner. That they deserve death. That Jesus' death is a substitute that appeases the wrath of God. That they deserve to die. That they can't earn salvation. That salvation is a gift freely given by faith because of who Jesus is and what He did. So if a child can really understand that and has appropriated in a real way in their own life as far as we can tell, then they should get baptized. So I don't ask how old they are. Some churches do. I've seen 32-year-olds get baptized and 20 years later, they've abandoned the faith. Age has nothing to do with it. And the 32-year-old gave a very clear articulation of the God. All we can do is just Okay, it sounds like you know Jesus, so we're going to baptize you. Amen. So, prerequisite for getting baptized, profession of faith, and then be on communion. What's a prerequisite for taking communion? Well, it's being a Christian. And, secondly, we saw it in 1 Corinthians 11. It is examining your heart before you take communion. The standard of taking communion is higher than the standard of baptism. That's why... Young children shouldn't be taking communion if they haven't been baptized. The standard of judgment is higher before God. Why subject your child to that high, scary standard if you're not even going to do baptism? Actually, I should add another prerequisite in there, A, B, C. My bad. Uh, The prerequisites for communion are a profession of faith in Jesus, getting baptized, and then personal examination before you take communion. So I just amended that uh, and added another one. According to the biblical model, examining your own heart. Okay, let's go on to number six. The ordinances, communion and uh, 
Baptism are not the gospel. They merely illustrate the gospel. They are living metaphors of the gospel. They are living symbols and metaphors of what Jesus has done on our behalf. We've said it repeatedly. Why do I need to emphasize this? Because today, more than ever, at least in my lifetime, we are hearing teaching, books are being written, pastors are preaching, churches are being started with a component of new theology that's always creeping into the church that's a little tweaked and it gets really bad. And actually, it wants to accentuate the gospel and at the same time, it actually undermines the gospel. And a theme of ongoing popular teaching in the church today is that the ordinances are the gospel. They are a means of grace. No, they're not. Communion is not the gospel. Baptism is not the gospel. Here's a worse one that's being perpetuated and propagated. Hold on. It's we, as, we are the gospel. Well, that's actually very scary if you think about it. If I, Cliff McManus, am the gospel, this world is doomed. There is no hope for anyone. Everybody is going to hell. So I am not the gospel. You are not the gospel. No Christian is the gospel. The gospel is good news. There's only one message of good news. It is all in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And to say that Christians are the gospel or we the gospel is to confuse categories in the most severe manner. So now that I've brought it to your attention, listen carefully out in the Christian world now to some preaching that's going on. And see if you hear people saying that. We are the gospel. The sacraments are the gospel. No, they're not. There's only one gospel. There's only one good news. The only good news that can save a sinner is the news about Jesus Christ. Uh, communion is not the gospel. Baptism is not the gospel. And that's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.17, Christ did not send me, the Apostle Paul, to baptize. Rather, He sent me to preach the Gospel. Which just shows you, by contrast, baptism is not the Gospel. It's a human ordinance. And a symbol of a greater reality. The Apostle Paul would have been perfectly content the rest of his life never baptizing another soul. As a matter of fact, it was not even in his job description. Baptism, technically, is not in my exclusive job description. Because I believe that any Christian can baptize another Christian. Because that's the Great Commission of Matthew 28. Why? Because every Christian is a priest and has the Spirit of God living in them. By the way, that whole uh, dispute about well, what actually happens at communion and uh, like I said, the Catholic Church says that the body and the blood literally turns into Jesus' body and blood when the priest raises it up in the air and says a prayer. That's called transubstantiation. After that moment, the bread and the cup literally are Jesus and as a result, that cup and bread can be worshipped it can be prayed to. It can provide healing. Really. That's what they believe. Latria is the Latin word they use for worship. Veneration of the cup and the bread. We don't believe in that. And then the Lutheran church believes that somehow Jesus' presence is permeated in the bread and the wine somehow in a way we don't understand. John Calvin almost got it right but not quite and said that, well, actually there's some kind of spiritual, mystical, subjective transaction going on when we take communion and the wine, and somehow Jesus is around and above us and around, what, in the cup and the bread. No. And the, the point of argument is all about where is Jesus relative to the cup and the bread? And I think this is a no-brainer. When I am having communion, where is Jesus? Jesus is in me. Amen? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians chapter 1. The Spirit of God indwells every believer. Romans chapter 8. I am with you wherever I go, Jesus said in Matthew 28. Where is Jesus at communion? He is in me, the believer. He is in our midst as we gather together collectively. That should be our point of emphasis when we're having communion. Where is Jesus? He lives in me. You can't get closer than that. I'd rather have Him living in me than a piece of bread. That is amazing. That is super, that's just mind-boggling. What a great reality. The ordinances are not the Gospel. They merely illustrate the Gospel. What is the Gospel? The good news, the only good news. And I'll close with these two verses out of the Romans road. The only thing that can save. The only thing that can confer grace. The only thing that can bestow justification and appease a holy God who judges is the Gospel about Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the Apostle Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel. I am not ashamed of the good news about Jesus. For it, the Gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Isn't that amazing? That is the only place we find salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in Romans chapter 10, he gets more specific about what that gospel is. 
And in Romans 10, 9 and 10, he says that if you sinner, you sinner, me sinner, confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. And the moment you believe that, you are saved completely, instantaneously, eternally. Every single sin, past, present and future, is swallowed up, drowned and washed away in the precious blood of Jesus and his sacrifice 2,000 years ago. And as a Christian, I say, Amen, I want to celebrate communion. And that's what we have the privilege of doing now. Let's go ahead and pray to the Father. Father, we thank You for the wonderful good news, the simplicity of the good news. And that's the greatness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, thank You for creating us and also for loving us so much You would abandon heaven, come down to earth, take on a human body, live a perfect life without sin, willingly go to the cross of execution worthy of the worst kind of criminal to be crucified and murdered by guilty humans and at the same time have the Father pour His wrath out on you while you're on the cross because you wanted to die on behalf of un deserving sinners and that you rose again from the dead after being buried thank you lord jesus that you ascended back into heaven and today you reign on high as master of the universe and any sinner that comes to you cries out to you asks for forgiveness of sin and believes in your glorious gospel instantaneously we thank you that you will save them embrace them adopt them into the family of god and hold them secure forever and thank you for giving us baptism and communion to remind the church of that forevermore. All for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650 630 0009.